You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to conference coverage highlights from the Radiological Society of North America's 95th Scientific Assembly and Annual Meeting, which took place November 29th through December 6th, 2009 in Chicago. Your host for this program is Dr. Jason Bernholtz, Director of Diagnostic Ultrasound Consultants in Oak Brook, Illinois. We're speaking with Dr. David Crosgrove, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Ultrasound at Imperial College and Consultant Radiologist at the Hammersmith Hospital in London. Now, I should tell you that Dr. Cosgrove is one of the most distinguished physicians in England. He's fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, Royal College of Radiologists, has lectured and authored innumerable things. He's a real, a real expert, and I'm very glad that he's able to, uh, to join us. He's one of the few people in the world that's had some clinical experience with a brand new form of ultrasound imaging that has been developed in France. It's now available in this country for clinical use immediately if needed. It involves something that either goes by the term elastography or strain imaging or shear wave imaging and Dr. Cosgrove's particular interest and the study that he is involved with right now as principal investigator is focusing on breast and detection of breast lesions. David, hello. Hi. I wonder if you might just start by uh, giving some of our clinical colleagues a little clue about what strain or shear wave imaging means. Well, interestingly, it's one of the earliest forms of diagnosis. And in fact, there's even a, a papyrus, the Ebers papyrus, back to 3500 BC, which advocates that the clinician should palpate the woman's breast feeling for lumps. And that's really the essence of elastography, you know, feeling for something stiff in a soft background. And really, the way it's done using ultrasound is just an extension, great extension, but it is an extension of what the palpating hand of the surgeon does. So the device is permitting you to gauge and, in fact, quantitate how firm or how soft, conversely, something is wherever it is in the body, deep down as opposed to up on the surface. Exactly. And that's, of course, its advantage, as well as the spatial resolution that's much better than the hand can feel. Ah, now, I wonder if I could inject a little something here since we're off to a philosophic beginning. And that is, I have always thought of ultrasound itself as a technical form of percussion which I guess one might date back to Austria in the 18th century, not nearly as old as the Ebers papyrus. But it's kind of interesting that here we have these basic physical examination techniques, one in which you're using a transducer to replace a percussing hand and a transducer to sort out the signals into an image, and a variation of that which now enables percussion. That's an interesting conjunction of ideas, and I agree. Those absolutely my thoughts too. Well, what have you been finding with the breast studies? Well, the breast, of course, is a very convenient organ to be studying because it's very accessible. And, of course, from a clinical perspective, the problems are extremely important. In the background, we need just to be reminded that a great number of women have unnecessary biopsies taken because the imaging is imperfect and the specificity is poor. And that's really what this method attempts to improve by improving the specificity so that we can advise a woman that she doesn't need a biopsy. All right. Well, we have two distinct threads here. One is detecting that a nodule is there, and the second, which you're now alluding to, is classifying what it might be. And so let's talk about the classification part. Obviously, 
something is palpated, something is identified, the mammogram, whatever, a woman is, uh, of course, extremely nervous because the concern always is this must be something terrible. And so follow up on that thread of avoiding biopsies, perhaps. I wanted to tip it that way because that's exactly what the study that we've been involved in, still are involved in, is uh, attempting to address. It's called the BE1 for Breast Elastography 1 study, and it's a multi-center, multinational study with, I think, seven U.S. sites and many in Europe. And so far, a 1,000 of the 2,500 target women have been recruited. So it's going very well, and it's right up to the landmarks that we intended at the beginning. And the purpose of the study is to look at masses and try to see if the elastography can help discriminate particularly in the middle band of the rating that we use, the BIRAD scoring system, which is devised by a committee from the American College of Radiology. It's often called the ACR, BIRADS, scoring system. Which maybe we should say at one end, starting with cysts and obviously completely innocuous uh, and unimportant nodules. At the far end, there is something which appears by all criteria to be an advanced carcinoma and then various intermediate stages. Yeah, so one is this cysts, five is the definite cancers. Um, It's in between group, the threes and the fours, where a lot of unnecessary biopsies, or at least in the case of the threes, follow-up studies are are done. And we'd like to try and clarify which category those threes and fours belong to. Now, if you identify that there is something that you believe is... Innocuous. You believe it's, uh, let's say, a fibroadenoma. It's a solid tumor, but there are no elastic features that suggest that this is at all likely to be carcinoma. Is that enough, or do women want to be biopsied anyway for peace of mind? It's, of course, very personal, and some women just don't like to have a lump. And, of course, if it's very large, they'd like to have it removed anyway because it's inconvenient and unsightly so there's a cosmetic aspect too but the psychological aspect of breast diseases is of course extremely important and something which I'm glad to say surgeons and physicians are taking much more seriously now than in the days of the Halstead mastectomy for any, for any woman who walks through the door. Yes actually that, there's an important point there because this is early days for shear wave imaging, which seems to be a very powerful adjunct to our techniques. But if you go back a few years, every cyst was suspect, and now we've learned that cysts are not important, and we ignore them with impunity. And I suspect in the future, uh, we will rely on the imaging findings and their correlates very much more than we might now because it's early days in this area. Yeah, it's true. The, the advances have been major. But there's a little, little way to go, or a long way even. Now, let me ask you to, to speculate. Let's go back a little bit into the uh, detection part. And your study is not addressing this, perhaps. But what do you think the, the role of ultrasound, especially with this addition, might be in primary screening? And I don't want to talk about mammography. We know it is marvelous and has a great potential. But what if we just focus on the ultrasound? Is this ready for screening Or not yet? At the moment, not. And in fact, when we first formulated the way the study would go, we did have a a sort of screening element to it, insofar as we built in a section where you studied the mass, but then you looked in the immediate vicinity to look if it was multicentric or multifocal. But the technology actually couldn't cope with that. And so we're actually waiting for new transducers to let us do that sort of thing. You couldn't move the probe fast enough 
the elastography wouldn't catch up. So you couldn't use it in a, in a screening mode. But that's not true now, though, is it? It's still true of the current system. But I, I know that behind the scenes, they're working on that. Right. Well, let's assume for the time being, we're a few years in the future. We have experience we don't have now. And that we're able to, to do a high-speed survey of elastic features of a good segment of breast all at once. Do you think that that has a potential to add to our screening? Very much. In fact, several companies are designing whole breast imaging, uh, ultrasonic imaging systems, which will incorporate 3D elastography of an entire breast. So perhaps not just one or two years, maybe five, we need to allow for that to become a real technology. Here's where I want you to speculate a little bit, because something I'm perceiving from what you you have been saying, which is that for forever, the way we evaluate things is first to identify a nodule and then to try to classify it. But I'm wondering if this or some related new technology will let us to use an entire different paradigm where instead of looking for nodules, we will be looking for a hotspot of sorts or an area that has different physical properties like elasticity as our primary screening and then worry about whether there is a physical nodule afterwards. Because after all, by the time you've identified a nodule, it's fairly late in the course of the disease, even though the nodule may be very small. Well, in a sense, what you're asking for is a replacement for mammography, which is the gold standard currently for breast screening. And yes, I think it's quite plausible that some other technique might come along. An ultrasound would be a prime candidate, but in fact there are others too. Optical scanning, palpation with a pressure sensing device, these are are in the wings. It's an exciting time to be a researcher in this area, isn't it? It certainly is. (laughs) And the benefits, of course, for women will be very good. David, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure indeed. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. David Cosgrove of Imperial College and Haversmith Hospital in London, England. We're speaking with Dr. Michelle Brown, who is Associate Professor of Radiology at the University of California, San Diego, in San Diego, and she's presenting her work on MRI of placenta accreta here at the RSNA. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, this is a kind of interesting topic. I wonder if you might start by telling us how you might decide when somebody's at risk for placenta accreta. Well, the major risk factor, as it turns out, is prior cesarean section. And this is also the reason that it's increased more than 10 times since 1950 in this country, because the rate of cesarean section has increased. So it's much more of an issue now than it was previously, because there's a higher incidence these days. Now, when you have somebody who's had a prior C-section and you're looking around, presumably with ultrasound to begin with, does it matter where the placenta is implanted? I mean, if you're going to sort your population out, if the placenta is implanted in the fundus and posteriorly, do you just ignore those people as a placenta accretor risk or do you treat them differently? It depends, like you said, on the risk factors. If the risk factor is prior cesarean section, then we look for the location of the placenta to be over the lower uterine segment. And if that's the case, then we would be more, more concerned, which is why placenta previa is also associated with placenta accreta because you have a p- placenta that's in that location. However, there are other risk factors such as myomectomy that might occur in the fundus. So in that case, a fundal placenta 
may also be an accreta, but it depends on what the prior surgery was. But C-section, which is what most people have, that means that a placenta would be in the lower uterine segment. That's, that's where it would be to invade into the uterus. What about a somewhat traumatic DNC? Is that also a risk factor? Yes, it is. Can you decide from the ultrasound when somebody is at risk, or do you just automatically go to an MRI whenever you think somebody might be at risk for an accreta? That depends on the institution. What we do is a combination of clinical risk factors and the appearance of the ultrasound. Generally, we have a low threshold to go to MR because we have some very expert people in MRI, and MRI of placenta accreta is um, something with a learning curve. I mean, it's not something that is done absolutely everywhere, but we do MR in almost everybody where there's any suspicion. However, if you have an ultrasound that's definitive, positive or negative, then you probably do not need the MR. The MR is for cases that are inconclusive. Oh. Well, when in pregnancy do you worry about this? Is this something you try to identify early, or do you do this late in pregnancy when it's going to matter more because delivery is coming up on the horizon? Right. Generally, it's not discovered until the usual 18 to 20-week routine ultrasound. Occasionally, it occurs in the first and second trimester. Those are pretty rare, as reported in the literature. What's most important is to identify it before the about 35 weeks, because what needs to happen if a placenta accreta is identified, generally they recommend delivery at 36 to 37 weeks. And also other things are required, such as you need to arrange for adequate blood products, which may mean donors from your family, because so much blood is lost in these surgeries. You also have to have expertise in different specialties, such as obstetrics, anesthesia, because they're replacing the blood products. Also, radiology, interventional radiology gets involved. Urology gets involved. So it's, it's a big surgery when it happens. So it's important to identify it before, I would say, 35 weeks. Now, you were not just doing ordinary MRI, but you were doing MR angiography, weren't you? We do use gadolinium in most cases. We used to use them basically in every case, but in more recent years, because of things we found out about gadolinium, we use it only in the third trimester right now. But we do use gadolinium. We think that it helps identify where the placenta ends and the uterus begins, basically the placental uterine interface. Well, if you've identified somebody as having an accreta or percreta and they're going to be delivered operatively, does the location of the placenta matter? Uh, The depth of invasion does help surgical planning to some extent. So, yeah, at least at our institution, the OBGYNs do do like to have that information. So not to put words in your mouth, but would you say if there is any risk or perceived risk of any of these placental issues, that an MRI would be a, a very worthwhile thing to do in the third trimester? Absolutely. If anyone's at risk, they should have an ultrasound first, of course, but an ultrasound with special attention to the placenta, which is sometimes the more, the more of the focus is on the fetus during an ultrasound. So the ultrasound needs to be really dedicated towards the placenta. If that is inconclusive, then definitely consider MRI. It depends on the, the expertise at your institution, of course, and the preference of your OBGYNs, but that's, that would be our recommendation. But, I mean, in this case, I would think MRI expertise at local level and image quality, they're there at this point in time. This is not experimental. I agree with you. I think it should be standard of care. And they're complementary. It's in our cases of what we found, false positive, false negatives, and things like that. It's, they're really complementary. They're not the same cases between ultrasound and MRI. So there are certain things that you can see on ultrasound versus MRI, and they really work together very well. That is great. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Michelle Brown from the University of California at San Diego in sunny Southern California. 
You've been listening to conference coverage highlights from the Radiological Society of North America's 95th Scientific Assembly and Annual Meeting. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.